Welcome to the Silicon Slopes Conversations. Today we're here with Zeb Evans, who's the founder and CEO of ClickUp, and a well-dressed gentleman. How are you? Doing great. How are you guys? We are good. It's a full house. Congrats. Um, a lot of ClickUp folks in the audience, which is always a good way to support. Let's just jump right in for those that don't know. ClickUp, the founding story. Yeah, so I think it's, it starts, uh, I mean, a, a long time ago, but really the, the elements of it coming to fruition were about four and a half years ago, where we were working on something completely different than, than ClickUp. We wanted to build a Craigslist competitor where you could pay in-app and remove sketchiness from, from Craigslist. At the time, Craigslist was the largest source of fraud internally in the United States, so excluding credit card fraud, it was the largest source of fraud. And I, I had been an entrepreneur since I was like four or five years old, so I was always like buying and selling things on, on Craigslist and eBay, and I'd gotten scammed many times. Uh, and so that was the problem that we, we set out to solve. But before we did that, we wanted to build our own productivity tool where we could put all of our work in one place. Uh, and that frustration came from my previous startup, which was like social media marketing and automation and re reporting before that stuff kind of existed. We started with just, I started with Basecamp when it was just myself. And then we ended up with like 30 people and we literally used 15 different productivity tools. We still, ha we still had Basecamp, but we used Jira for engineering, we had Asana for lists, we had Trello for boards, at the time you couldn't switch between them. Uh, we had marketing approval software, we had Google Docs, we had Google Sheets, we had Skype and Slack, we had to do us for personal reminders, uh, and then we had Confluence. So it was like this, this cluster of productivity applications and the whole goal of productivity is to make you more productive, right? It's called, they're called productivity applications, but I, I couldn't help but think that we were being less productive by, by using them. And so I kind of just like snapped and was like, let's just create our own tool before we create the Craigslist thing so that we'd be able to, to do it more efficiently and more productively. Yeah, you and I are in the same boat with productivity tools. They seemed less productive the more you have, and we face that problem here, um, and we've been pitched by Howard and others that we need to start using ClickUp. Um, and the more I hear about it, the more I like. So you're solving your own problem, building your own startup, and a little bit similar to Slack, right? That evolved from a problem as well. So at what point did you push all of those aside and start using ClickUp? Very, very quickly, uh, actually. I mean, we too early probably is, is the answer where it wasn't ready for what we needed it to be. But, but very quickly, I mean, and also I think the point to make is that we started ClickUp and I thought it would take us like a month to finish na naively. And we got a month or so into it. And that was where the switch flipped, where we really just realized that this is what we wanted to create and productize. Um, I'm extremely passionate about productivity and efficiency and every, every minute mattering. And everybody that was the founding uh, core folks were, were as well. So we, we knew very quickly that this was the thing that we wanted to sell. It didn't, it didn't take us years to, to realize that. Very cool. And you're a big proponent of productivity because you've had some incidents in your life, some near brushes with death. How did that impact you and why do you have this philosophy of productivity? Yeah, so I've, I've had four near-death experiences, five if you count one from, from like a month and a half ago. I was in a car accident, and the car was totaled, and we hit two trees. Um, but I've, I feel like I have, I have nine lives, but I also feel like I have uh, this extreme focus on, on every, where do you spend every minute, right? And, and how do you spend every minute? What are you doing to, to make that minute pr productive? 
And if it's not, and you need to change something. And, and so, I mean, there, there's tons of, of tools and tricks and methodologies and everything out there. And I think largely everybody is, is different and every company is, is different. No one size fits all. But that's why we built ClickUp so flexible and customizable. It's, it's honestly, it's the good and the bad of ClickUp is that it's, it's, we don't have an opinion in how you, you, you work. Um, so you can flex it and mold it to whatever you want to build. But at the same time, you have to do that, right? You kind of have to build, build it your, your, yourself. And, and so I think the, those near-death experiences contributed how much, I cre how much I care about productivity, how much I care about efficiency. And, and certainly if I hadn't had them, ClickUp click up would not exist. Yeah. So if five near-death experiences, you have four lives left, I s hope you have a good insurance policy. <laughs> Life insurance and all Yeah, I that. think our head of legal is somewhere here, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody wants that. Um, okay, so with your philosophy on productivity, it's, you got a, like a 1% kind of rule. And yeah. What is that? So it's for the whole company. It's one, we say grow 1% every, every day. And the philosophy is more around progress towards perfection and knowing that iteration is, is better than perfection, generally speaking. When we were early on in a startup, I always said progress over perfection. Like, don't even think about perfection. Just think about progress. Then you have to make a shift at a certain point that you need to start thinking about perfection and, and march towards that, but still over-focus on the progress toward, towards getting there. And, and so I think pro that's what productivity is, is about. It's, it's about just making progress. Uh, and it doesn't have to be the fully towards the end goal that you want it to be, because many times you create the longest, maybe best plan that you could ever create for building something. It doesn't have to just be product or, or for some type of strategy. And you try to, you march all the way towards that direction. You spend 100% of your time doing it, and then you realize that it was the wrong direction, or then you realize you should have done something differently. If you just go 10% or even 1% more, you're going to learn much quicker, and you can be reactive to changes. So you can be reactive to what markets are telling you, you can be reactive to what customers or employees are telling you, and you can change your direction and, and change your path. So I think like that, that's at the core of, of productivity. It's growth. It's it's just all about growth, and I think that's what growth is equivalent to to happiness in many ways too. Not just in work, but in, in your personal lives. And if without growth, I mean, it's like why why are we here? What what are we doing if we're, if we're not building? If we're not growing? And I think that that's also it's what makes you feel productive. Like it's it's hard to measure productivity, and we're we're trying to do it. Uh, but at the same time, it's all, it's all about how do you how do you feel? Like do you feel like you're growing? Uh, and for me. I certainly get that from, from work, but outside of work, it's, it's as simple as just setting 10 minutes a day aside for growth, whether it be listening to a podcast or reading 10 minutes of a book. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. And usually that 10 minutes turns into longer. But the point about 10 minutes is that anybody can make 10 minutes. No matter how busy you are, you can always make 10 minutes. And, and that's where it starts. Yeah, so associating productivity with happiness. You're the founder of ClickUp, but you're also a person with your own feelings and emotions. Um, Feeling productive and happy for you personally, how do you know you're in a good spot? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about being honest with, your, with yourself and knowing that it's okay to, to be stressed out or, or to feel like there's tons of problems that you can't solve. Like, that, that's okay. So you have to, you have to acknowledge yourself, your, your feelings and where you are. I mean, it's, it's finding, founding a company, it's, it's, it's not easy, right? It's probably the hardest thing you can do for, as far as work, work goes. You're going to be hit with, with trucks every single day, hit with major problems every single day. You're going to be worried every single day about, is your business going to survive? Is this even the right path that I'm on? 
Um, but I think the, the progress towards perfection thing matters, matters more than anything in that scenario. It's like just show that you're, you're making progress and, and it helps. But I think there, there is, I think yeah, everybody talks about their own like methodologies in the mornings and the evening. I think everybody's, everybody's different. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm a huge journaler and, and I love baths. And so I take a bath as soon as I wake up and right when I'm going to sleep. And that's like my way to disconnect and to write and to, to you know, really re realize how, how I'm feeling. Um, and you just have to be, be honest and, and open and, you know, disconnect sometimes or do the things that you love doing and enjoy doing when you're starting to feel stressed out. Right? For, for me, I, I love product. Right? I'm, I'm very much the, the product marketing founder. And, and so when I'm getting too many meetings or too, too much uh, kind of problematic things that you're dealing with, then I like to, to disconnect from those. And it doesn't mean I'm disconnecting from, from work, but I'm doing the work that I love and, and enjoy doing. And it's what kind of re-inspires re you. Very cool. So productivity in a company, in a business, if the majority of the workforce is productive, they'll probably be happier um, at work. And then when they go home, it's a bad feeling when you, you're leaving the office and you're like, dang it, wasn't a good day, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned your product kind of founder. How do you guys as a company kind of measure the productivity internally and then how rewarding is it to see your clients being more productive and ultimately more happy? I think r right now productivity is largely measured qualitatively uh, and I think that's a good way to measure it. It's like what, what objectively did you get done this week, this, this day? What are the things, the milestones that you're tracking towards, the goals that you have? that progress, celebrating that, that progress. And so largely productivity as a whole is, is measured that way. What we're trying to do is, is also measure it quanti quantitatively. Uh, and it's not easy, and it certainly isn't perfect yet. But we know that if we can put all of your work in the same place, and we know where your communication ha is happening, we know where you're bottlenecked, we know what you're tracking towards and what your strategy should be, if you can tell us your goals, then, then over time we, we can give you a quantitative measure of, of productivity. It's more relative. It's like, what, what did you get done this week versus last week, or this month versus last month, or this quarter versus last quarter? Because no two companies, no two teams are the same. So you really have to measure against like what was done prior in the past to know if you're becoming more productive uh, over, over time. And then if you get that 1%, it compounds and yeah. becomes better. Very cool. Um, so you guys are kind of riding a rocket ship. Uh, hyper growth, you've raised a lot of money in a, in a short amount of period. And from some big funds, right, uh, that are intimidating, I would imagine. They're kind of the who's who. Um, how are you and your team managing this hyper growth? Yeah, I think it's, it's I mean, it's, it's certainly challenging. You, you, you go, we went from 100 to, to 850 employees in, in about a year. And so everything that can break down during that period did. But it, growth is just equivalent to, to how fast you can react to and solve problems like that. That's what growth is. Can, can you f admit there's a problem, find it, f figure out some solution, try to fix it, and then move on to the next problem? It's, it's all problems. So you just have to enjoy sol solving problems, and, and that that's what that mindset is. Like that, I think that that was the experience that I, that I learned was you keep getting hit with more problems, more problems, more problems, and people problems are tough, right? They get to you emo emotionally, uh, but that's the reality of of the 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 choice that we, that we made and and you can create a lot of growth from pro, from solving problems so so for us like that that is is what what still motivates us uh, and, and ultimately that that's how we were able to grow that that fast but I think it's also important to to, to 
bring in people from the outside that have seen what it looks like on the other side, right? See, bring people from all um, different size companies, people that have seen what it looks like at 50,000, at 5,000, at 500, at five. Having all of those, those perspectives is very, very, very important. And putting those people in the same room or the same Zoom meeting and, and discussing those problems because you can actually, you can leapfrog yourself and, and solve them a lot faster than you would on your own. Yeah, and speaking of on your own, the buck stops with you, right? CEO, um, with the hyper growth, I imagine a lot of these are just brand new experiences. Looking around the corner like, oh, that's going to be a new one. Um, kind of skiing blindfolded occasionally. Um, you mentioned kind of using others as case studies, board, that, that type of thing. Um, when you don't quite know the, the vision or the answer to the next phase of growth, what are some tools or methods you use to, to get a better understanding? I, I like just trying things. I, I think you, you'll learn by doing. Um, there, there is is no textbook you can read. There's no single perspective you can go to, and and give, they can give you what they did in the past, but it's it's just different. Every, every context, every company, every person, every product, it's all it's all very different. So nothing works the exact same way that it did at any given point. So again, I think it's just about being reactive. Like it's like trying things and not going too far in that direction. Like saying this this be what you think the solution is. Let's let's try it a little bit and see if it's working and starting to work. Double down, triple down on it. If not, pull back and 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 go in, in the other in the other direction. Um, that's what we we've, we've always done and I think it's I think it's the best way to learn. I also think it's the most fun. I think it's it's more it's more fun that way. Uh, and there's there's certainly more growth that comes from it. So if you're going down the wrong track, you won't go very far and you minimize your waste of time and loss. That's a very good approach to doing that. So for example, you know, you guys needed to make a decision on when to, to raise funds. What was the thought process there? How did the team come to the decision that it was the right time? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of serendipitous, but I think a, a point to understand is that, so we didn't raise funds early early on. Um, we we were very much bootstrapped until actually we bootstrapped we were extremely profitable a, a year and a half ago, and we thought that I mean I'm from North Carolina, I'm from a small town in North Carolina, and and I was always very wary of bringing on Silicon Valley investors, right? You all, you see the you know Steve Jobs. Uh, experiences, those types of types of things, and, and you, you incorrectly assume that all investors are, are like that, and, and they're not. But we didn't have a choice because not only did I not know how to fundraise, but anybody, our our, our vision was like building everything for everyone. We didn't want to choose a segment; we wanted to build very flexible software, basically 15 products inside of one. And at the time, I mean, it still is to some extent. Do one thing and do it well is the, the general consensus. So nobody would fund the the idea that we had. Uh, even after we became profitable, no, nobody would fund it. I went up to San Francisco, and for a week I did the fundraising thing because the investors are calling you and they're begging you to come. I'm like, okay, this is going to be easy. Um, every investor is calling us. We'll go up there. And I did the dance and talked around to every investor, and only one investor told us no. Every other investor didn't say yes. So, the, I mean, that's what I don't think investors really say no. They they always just they, they could, because they don't want to they don't want to pass on, on the business and then be wrong, and they don't want like the reputation of being wrong. But if they don't give you an immediate yes, it's it is a no. Like that that that's what how investors work. And with the, the no was actually from Andreessen Horowitz, and they they wrote me like a two page long letter, and it was very very thoughtful. And, and so every investor that didn't say yes to us, I I completely ignored for for until now, <laughs> and I always will. Um, I, I definitely hold, hold their grudges. Uh, but I, I, 
I, it, it, probably too hard. But I think that it's, it's also just important to understand who gives you credit, right? Who, who, be, who believes in you from, from the beginning. And, and so and that's why we, we took Andreessen Horowitz on our Series C, um, is because they did it very gracefully. They did tell us no, and they told us why. And they said they may be wrong. And then they said, hey, they, they, were, they were wrong. And they reached out, and they did it, they did it very, very gracefully. Um, but there's, there's, I think the, the story about when we actually did, and so raise our Series A, which was probably like seven or eight months later after we tried to raise. So after we tried to raise, I felt like I stayed there another week, and it was like two weeks of completely wasted time. And obviously, I'm the productivity person. I thought it was the biggest waste of time I had ever done in recent memory. And, and so that summer, um, I think it was like May, David Sachs reached out, reached out to me, and I, we 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 just ignored every single investor. Um, but he reached out himself, and I knew who he was, and I, I respected him. And, and so I, I returned his phone call, and we talked. And what was a thirty-minute meeting turned into like three hours. And he just I, we just kind of clicked. You know, it was, it was the first investor that I I really clicked with, and I felt like was a, a real person that understood the struggles of being a founder and wasn't just really in it for for them themselves. So it's very it's very rare to find to find those investors. Like it it it, it really is, uh, and, and the ones that are going to be on your side when when things are are, are tough. And he always he always has been. So I think somebody told me early on like choose the investors that you would marry. I, and and I think it's very true. Like you're, you're you, the only thing that you should care about from and aside from the obvious things like ter your term sheets, the only thing you should care about is is culture. It's is your investors a, cult a culture fit for you? Like that that's what you should be screening for, because investors are actually not going to help you grow your business. They 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 don't. They they they're running their own company. They have their own things to think about. They can't jump in jump into your company and understand everything that's going on and tell you what to do. They can point out problems on your, your financial projections and your balance sheets, uh, but they're not going to be able to, to, to help grow your business. Like You, you have, to have to do that, and, and regardless of which investors they are, even if they're, they're, they're the, the sequoias of the world, that, that's always gonna, going to be true. Yeah, that's very good advice. Um, and it's okay to hold a grudge every once in a while. Um, You've mentioned product time and time again. Um, I'm always interested when I'm using software as, as a product. I wonder who, who thought of this and how ended it up on my computer and I'm using it. How do you guys um, run your product life cycle? Um, you're obviously going to be passionate about it, but how does the stuff that we use originate? What's the thought process within ClickUp? Well, so... It's very much a different story today than it was a, a year ago. Really, a year and a half ago, I was actually the only only product and, and design design person at the company. So I, I love 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 product, and I we were very much we didn't do things the, the way that you would normally do. We didn't have user research. We didn't really have any type of testing framework or validation. Uh, we just kind of kind of sat in a room with some, uh, uh, when, we, when we were able to hire designers, I would sit in the room with another designer or two, uh, and then we would just, we would think about how we can, we, first of all, we'd listen to feedback, which is the most important thing that you can do. It's like, use a feedback platform if you're building a product. We use Canny, it's, it's great, but there, there's, there's plenty of them out there. And if you are the founder, if you are the product person, product co-founder, or even just head of product, like that's what you should be in all day, is listening to every single piece of feedback that, come, that comes in. You can't act on every piece of feedback, but you at least can, can synthesize like the, the trends that are coming from it, and, and it can help you build your product in a way that increases organic and viral growth. Because if you build what customers are asking, uh, then, and, and you take it to the next level, like that's how you're gonna grow 
grow more or organically. So, I mean, in, inside of, of ClickUp today, now we, we have 15 or so different product squads um, that are each focused on a functional area of, of the product. Um, so, for example, there's a doc squad that's focused just on docs, and there's an engineering manager, there's a product manager, there's several engineers, and there's usually an engineering lead. And they're all marching toward the same direction as far as what they're building within that piece of, of the product. So it's more of a formalized, it's more of a structure now. You, you've got to mature as, as you grow, but you can't add too much process. And, and that's, I think, where you go, go wrong in product is adding way too much process. And, and you just have to hire incredible product people that love and enjoy what they're doing and give them, give them the freedom to, to create. And it sounds like that's your favorite part of being the CEO. Um, what's your least favorite part? Um, I would say meetings. <laughs> I, think, I think meetings in, in general can, can be very inefficient. Um, so, so all of our meetings are, are I would say most of them, I, I hope, um, <laughs> while some of our employees here, I think mo most of them should be very productive. We, we, we have a rule that, that's, that should be followed most, most of the time of 30-minute meetings max, so no, no hour-long meetings, condense them into 30, and, and do meetings with, with a goal and the right stakeholders, because meetings can become highly efficient. Your, your, your calendar can be blocked down by meetings, and everybody, especially when you're remote, like lots of times when, I mean, when meetings aren't engaging, you're just, you're just browsing anyway, you're answering your Slack messages, you're on ClickUp, like whatever, whatever you're using, you're, you're just doing that behind the scenes. So you might as well not be on the meeting. Um, so I think meetings, meetings can, be, can be frustrating and inefficient. Yeah, I would agree. And um, there's also some fun parts of uh, being a, a startup that's on hypergrowth. One of those is a funny, really well done Super Bowl commercial. Um, talk a little bit about that. Who, who came up with the idea, and uh, what was the process like to do that? Yeah, you know, so we we've always been very a very creative company, and I live and breathe it. And so I, I hired our, our first real creative hire, our chief creative officer, Melissa. She was very much consumer brand from from BuzzFeed um, and Cheddar, and I hired her. Uh, about a year and a half ago, um, a, year, a, year, a year and some change ago. And the, the premise was like, let's build all of our creative in-house. So almost all software companies use agencies for, for creative. Um, for, for product, it, it varies. Lots of times you do, do the product designers in-house. But for brand design, and especially video and animations, that stuff is usually done uh, with, with other companies, with, with agencies. And so I just want to be able to do it in-house. I think if you do it in-house, you have, you have more control over it, uh, but it's also better. It, it, you have more ownership because people actually care about what they're building. They have all of the context from, from the past. They're not just helicoptering into your company and trying to figure out a creative that works for you. Like They are part of your company and your culture and your brand, and they're all in on it, and so they can, they can build incredible creative. Uh, and so it doesn't work for everybody. It didn't work for us when, when we didn't have any money to hire those people. So don't get me wrong. You can't just everybody can't just do it over overnight. But but I think when you can, it, it it does pay back itself. It's hard to attribute a lot of the 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 revenue to creative, especially when it's organic. It's very hard. So when you look from a financial perspective, like I think lots of times you're not going to get a green light from from financial because it just doesn't make make financial sense. But it, it does in the, in, the, in the long term. And so to answer your question about the Super Bowl commercial, I mean, that was, that was one of those, those really big bets that we took on the organic and the creative side. We're like, we, we built this amazing creative department. Why can't we, we go out there and do like the, the top of the line thing, which is the Super Bowl ad, right? That's, that's the creator's dream. A video, video producer's dream is to do a Super Bowl ad. 
And, and so we, we knew that we, we could, we knew that we had the team for it, and we did 100% of the Super Bowl commercial in-house. In, in and we were the only, only software company to, to ever do that. And you know, it was a great process. It was, it was a big bet. We, we actually sat in, in, in a room, and 12 of our leaders voted on whether or not we would do this. We kind of did it out, and it was six for six. And then our CTO was like, wait, if my vote changes, then I'm going to change my vote from no to yes. And then so he changed his vote, and, and, and it, was, it was a yes. And uh, you know, I think it, it's, as far as like attribution goes, it's, it's hard to attribute. You're, there's no way in hell, even for consumer brands, that you're going to get that lift um, of what you, you put into it overnight, right? immediately when you get the traffic. It's, it's not going to be paid back in ROI immediately. But through brand awareness, and, and digital campaigns that you can complement it, and organic growth in the, in the regions that you run it in. We ran it in 18 regions. That, that's where, you, where you, you can get the, va the value back from. And so it's, it's certainly still a bet. The creative itself was, it was actually a theme of one that we had created already for the Declaration of Independence um, that, that you know, went kind, kind of viral just through, through software a little bit. And so we, we, we just kind of doubled down on that approach we actually tested an entirely different, a B version also, that was like a before and after in the office versus ClickUp. And we used user testing, which is usually for, for product testing, but we put the video in there and we got a lot of, a lot of good qualitative feedback. And, and ultimately, we took the bet on the declaration one. Very cool. And for those that haven't seen it, it's uh, the founding father signing the Declaration of Independence. And I think it was John Adams couldn't find the latest draft. And there's papers all over the place, and Thomas Jefferson's making fun of him, and they're all making fun of him, and and then somebody opens a computer, and I'm like, oh, I got it all here, and it's ClickUp, right? So it's really funny, and it's probably true that they it was stressy for them to keep track of everything. Yeah, it was true they used ClickUp. <laughs> so you have a much more valuable company, which is time travel. Yeah. Good for you. T-shirt company, time travel, and ClickUp. Um, all right, we're going to open up for questions here in a little minute. I've got one or two more. Um, you're a forward-thinking individual, um, and the pandemic's been interesting for remote work, and you know, obviously ClickUp was in a good spot, good timing for that. I'm sure it saved a lot of people a lot of heartburn and ultimately made them more productive and happy. Um, what's the two-sided two question? What are you most excited about over the next year for ClickUp? and um, kind of the future of work as it pertains to your guys' product? I think I, actually the, the answer is the, sa the same for both. It's, we're working on our, uh, the third version of our product right now, uh, which is like the real final evolution of the, the original vision that we had since, since day one of being able to put all of your work in one place and being able to make you more productive. So we've built like this, this toolbox of tools, 15, 15 tools really that are highly flexible and customizable, um, but the, the whole theme and the mission of saving you time is really only there if you're using it in, in the way that you, you, you're actually doing that. Um, so the next evolution of, of ClickUp is, is bringing your communication in the same place. Um, it's also managing people, and, and I think that there's a huge opportunity here to build an, an ecosystem of tools that don't exist today for managing yourself and managing people, knowing what everyone is working on, what should they work on next, and what can we get do? What can we get done over a given period of of time? Um, there's also, I think, that Slack is um, it's a great product, but it's it, I believe it's synchronous. Everybody says it's asynchronous, meaning that you know you just kind of you you answer messages when you want to. But I think the reality of Slack is like it's very much synchronous. Like when you're connected to a channel, it's live, and your focus is entirely there. It's just it's almost like you're on a Zoom call. 
And, and it's actually more distracting. You're going through and you're clicking through channels and you're marking things on red and you're going back and forth. So I think it's actually a huge source of, of inefficiency is like synchronous chat communication. So we're, we're, we're building something that's more asynchronous led and that ties all of our other, our other pieces of our, our platform together um, to truly, truly make you more productive. And so I think that, that is more the future of work. As far as, as like remote versus hybrid goes, we were always about 50% remote in, in our company, even bef before the pandemic. So we were very supportive of a remote work and environment. I think everybody works differently, and it's just important to embrace how people work. Some people work better remotely. Some people work better in person. And, and it, largely, it's dependent on the role, too. We find our creative teams, they always work in person. Sales teams like to work in person. Whereas, you know, and you probably guess, most engineers don't, don't like working in, in person. So it's just about being, I think that's another thing about, like, just try things, see what works, and then be, be reactive to, to what works. Yeah. All right. We'll open it up to uh, some questions from the audience. We should have some microphones right over there. So I was creeping on your LinkedIn, and I saw that you said college is a waste of time. Uh, so I was just curious, if college is a waste of time, what is not a waste of time if you want to be a successful entrepreneur? <laughs> I gotta qualify that. It's like I, in general, call it college is a waste of time, and unless you're doing a hi highly specialized degree, um, and it's it's not ev everywhere. I think I think it's it's for for me. I, I so I did, I went to college for for two years. I went to Virginia Tech, and, and then I I dropped out after actually after my one of my near death experiences, um, and I think for for business you you do learn by doing, and and especially in in this day and age, I mean you can you can just start things very quickly. Uh, especially if, obviously, if there's no brick and mortar to it. So it, it's really important to learn by doing. Um, if I hadn't done three or four of those different like attempts at a product before ClickUp, it just ClickUp wouldn't exist or we, we would have made too many mistakes uh, and we just would have failed. So I think learn, learning by doing is, is the, way, what the way to learn. Um, but there are always exceptions to things, right? There are those top 1% of schools where you do learn a lot by doing or you, you learn from professors that have done it before rather than from professors that are teaching you from a textbook and never actually experience it in real life. And, and so, so there's exceptions to everything for, for sure. And you know, if you're going for a specialized degree where it really does matter, then you need it. But I think also my perspective is that it's still highly inefficient. Like I think co college and for four years could be trimmed down to two and it would be much more efficient, much cheaper. And I think you, you would learn a lot more. But I, I also think you, sh you should learn what you want to do. I think high school should be where you, where you learn what you want to do. Where you go, you learn all the basics that you need, the math and, and all, all of the standard things you need through middle school, maybe first year of high school. But at least two years in high school, are, you're, you're just trying a bunch of electives. You're like saying, like, do I like engineering? Do I like business? Do I like marketing? You're trying a bunch of things. And then when you go to college, you actually know what path you want to take. If you want to go to college, you know, you know what path you want to take. And so you can go there and double down on it rather than going there and it being like a testing environment for if you like it or not. Because so many people go to college for a degree that they don't use, use today. And so I think it, it can be a waste of time. Now, in retrospect, that you've gotten your uh, funding, uh, what do you feel was the best use of those funds? What generated ROI and what would you change? What didn't generate, generate ROI for you? Yeah, I think when... Usually when you raise like your first round of, of funding, it's more for, for product. And, I, and also I'll take a step back, is, is at, when start doing a startup, the beginning, the only thing that matters is product. Right? The only thing that matters is, is product. 
After a product, the only thing that matters is product market fit. You've got to have a sustainable product, people that want to use it, and people that will pay for it. Right? You, have to have, you have to have a business model to make it sustainable. And, and then after that, it's about people. Right? It's all about the people that, that you hire and the people that you bring in, into the company. So it's different for every, every funding stage that you're in, but like more of a Series A seed style, it's certainly just about the people. You've got, you've got to use the money, all of the money, for the people and the product. Um, if, if you don't have the product there already. So it depends on what stage you're in. If you don't, if you don't have the product, then sure, you gotta spend it all on the product. Don't spend any on, on marketing. If you have the product and no, no product market fit, you shouldn't be spending any, any of it. You should be figuring out product, product market fit. Right? You, should, you shouldn't be marketing something that doesn't have product market fit. Um, if you have a product market fit, then you should be spending it on people. And, and, and marketing, but you have to be sustainable when it, when it comes to marketing. So like everybody thinks you, know, you raise, raise a shit ton of money from the outside, and this does happen, don't get me wrong. Tech companies that raise a shit ton of money, and they, they spend it really, really quickly, and it, se it seems highly inefficient from, from the outside. You know, those companies running bill, bill, having billboards and, and things like that. And I think that w there actually is a, a measure to, to unit economics where you, the, the most important unit economic to understand is, is net retention. And I did not understand this until a year, until we started raising funds. And, and net retention is basically just every dollar that comes in, what is that dollar worth a year after it comes in? And if it's above 100%, it means that every dollar of revenue that comes in grows by over that dollar, including churn, right, in, in perpetuity. So we, we have 160% net retention. So it means every dollar that comes in, grows by 1.6x every year in perpetuity, in, including churn. And so what that allows us to do is we can spend a lot of money up front to acquire a customer, knowing that they'll pay us back over time. But you, you have to have your data there, you've got to have your foundation there, because we did spend very inefficiently early on, and we, waste, we wasted a lot of money early on. Um, but we realized it, and then you have, you have to fine tune it and, and make it, make it more, more efficient. Um, but when you're in a highly competitive category too, it is a land grab. I, I mean, it, it, is, it is a land grab, and, and when you have high net retention, it's a land grab. Uh, and so you've got to spend more money up front in order to, to get your payback over time. And that's all raising funds is. Uh, you, you, could, you could raise a very small amount of, of money and build the same thing, but it would just take longer. So, so raising funding is just about growing faster. And, and you, you have to always keep in mind like a sustainable and efficient approach to growing, even if you're, you're inefficient at a certain point. Hi, in uh, one of your earlier campaigns, you targeted Alassian Jira directly, um, and the content was, was, was really good and focused. Was that from personal experience of using Jira? Was that like the Fire Jira ad, or the Abeta tool ad, or just in general? Just general. I hated Jira. Um, I mean, look, Jira's gotten better for, for sure, but, but I absolutely hate, hated Jira when, when we started using it, and I was the administrator, and I felt like it just took 50 clicks to do anything that you wanted to do, and that it was so inefficient. It gets, gets back to the in, inefficient thing, but it was the only option for software, for building software. It was all engin engineering, and everything else was too limited and too simple to use. So we wanted to build something that was, was, can be have all of the bells and whistles and the complexity and the surface area that Jira covers, but also build something that can be simple and be, be used by end users that just enjoy product, great product experiences that we're using something simple for, for, for a small person team. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, yeah, it was definitely, definitely from, from my frustrations. Yeah, two-part question here, Zeb. Sia uh, is your name. Uh, you are looking to open an office in Sydney, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. So this works for my APAC team. 
uh, I work for a, series a, uh, for a Series A company out of New Zealand, and they themselves are looking for growth in the U.S., right? Uh, so, and we also, our Series A was led by Insight Partners, so it can relate to that need to grow fast, right? So my two-part question for you is both internal and the obvious question for the room, why Utah for your second office outside of San Diego? So speak to that. Um, and also, what expectations can we have graduating from that Series A growth uh, to whatever is next as a productivity suite ourselves? In no way competition with, with ClickUp, who are in the legal ops space. But what are some of those growing pains that can be expected, and how do you account for those as a product-led organization? Yeah, so the, the first part about, about Utah is we, we looked at all of, like, I think the standard options that you would look at, the Austins and Atlantas of, of the world. That point I was just making earlier about the people uh, at a certain point matter more than anything. So we, we were not in search of, like, where is the, the, the highest tech influence place um, to grow. We were, we were in search of where, where are the best people that we can build, build the company with. And so we, we, we looked around and we did, we did the dance and we, we came to Utah and we started talking to all the leaders. At a certain point also, by the way, you, it, it, you, you, you can only spend your time in certain areas. And so at, at our scale, you have to spend your time hiring leadership. Uh, and so we were, we were really just vetting all, all of the, the leaders in, in certain areas. And when we got to Utah, there was a very, um, there was honestly a lot of just incredible, exceptional people here that were super excited and passionate about building something, which is, is not, it's not easy to find anymore, right? There, there is, is the job markets are, are really crazy. There's high demand in tech, and there's a lot of like cushy companies, and there's a lot of peacetime companies, right? We are, we are 100% in, in wartime, and so we need to find people that would, are okay with being in wartime right, right now, and, and really just dedicating themselves and to the, to the company and the mission, and, and building something that's, that's their big hit. That we're, you know, this is something that we celebrate for the, for the rest of our lives. It's a thing that 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 stays here when when we're gone, and here was where we were able to to find those those people, and, and so it's it's been it's been exactly what we thought it was going to be, and and better for for sure. Um, and the the second part of your question is more around like after your Series A stage, what what pitfalls to avoid? Well, not not only what pitfalls to avoid, but best practices for. Um, for that fast growth uh, as you know, you're starting to attract a lot more competition with uh, what your approach has been and also kind of what you alluded to, uh, growing your leadership, uh, training from within and, and getting a lot of them ready for that next step. Yeah, mo most things all revolve around product at a certain point. And so you've, you've got to move really quickly when it comes to product and just iterate as fast as, as you can. Don't, it doesn't have to be perfect. Don't write perfect code. Don't write perfect tests. Uh, at some point, you can fix it. Everybody does. We're going through that process now. Um, but but you know, there's there as uh, one of our, our our head of data, head of analytics, he was, he was like, Zeb, we, we wrote the perfect code in my previous company, and we had the perfect architecture and the perfect team from the outside, but we grew at 10% a year. So so you, you don't want to search for that point I was making originally. You don't want to search search for perfection. You just want to search for progress. So I think that that theme is is what to double down on after your Series A. Also, don't don't become complacent just because you raise a Series A. In fact, it's, it should light more fire on, under you to to move faster, to break things, to go go even even more quickly towards that path that you have towards towards your vision. Um, people are gonna 
at that, that same time, though, the point about people is if you make wrong choices at Series A about people, you're screwed. And, and it's hard to undo. It's really, really, really hard to undo. So you always need to hire for, for what is your culture. You've got to figure out what your culture is, for, first of all. I don't think lots of, lots of companies haven't actually figured that out. It's just a bunch of things that they put on, on a wall, a bunch of words they put on a wall. Figure out what your culture is. Make sure that you hire the leadership and the people early on that are in line with your culture. It doesn't matter about their accolades. And previous companies, you can get very biased on. Right? You can look at, you can look at like, this person is the head of marketing at Slack. Like, wouldn't this be an amazing, amazing hire for us? In reality, lots of people were there during the journey, and, and it's hard to find which person or, or small group of people were the real contributors to the success of that certain area. Very, very hard to do, unless, unless you have investors that are giving you that insight, which is, is, I think, the most valuable thing about investors, is back-channeling. They, they will be able to tell you, uh, you can send them any candidate, and usually they'll be able to find out a lot of information from inside of the company about those candidates. And that is the single best way to, to, to hire and to, to avoid problems. We have avoided so many problems by, by back-channeling, and if you don't have investors or if your investors can't help you, you can um, reach out to people on LinkedIn. Just never, I mean, you shouldn't reach out to people at the company that they're at today, right? You should reach out to the companies that they're at in the past. That, that is more of, of um, the good way to, to do back channeling. But, but you, can't, you can't make those mistakes from, from Series A. So the people you bring on, you, you, I, I wouldn't say try and hire the best, the best people in the world with the best accolades. Try to hire the, the best people that, that are in line with your culture and very obsessed with the mission and will we'll drive things forward and, and, and dedicate them to themselves. Very cool. I've enjoyed this very much, Zeb. Thank you. And uh, congrats on all that you guys are doing. It sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, clearly your team's all, all in and having fun as well. So thank you for your time. Thanks, everybody.